What's up, everybody? This is FTW with Ahmad Khan. I'm your host, Ahmad Khan, and joining me today on this Extorted Like Beckham edition is Will Parton, researcher for the University of North Carolina Center for Information Technology and Public Life. Hey, thanks for having me back. And later on, we'll have Tobias Sack of the Esports Observer to talk David Beckham's crazily overvalued esports team. But first, China. Last week, I wrote an article for .esports that explained the lack of outcry over China's human rights violations when such criticisms were quickly levied against Saudi Arabia. My conclusion was that essentially, fans and casters were willing to take on fights with less risk. Given that Saudi Arabia has no relationship with esports, it was easy to lob criticism and boycott any deals as there was nothing yet established. But China has been in the esports scene for much longer, and the government is far more heavy-fisted in dealing with criticism. Surprisingly, I found that my article had some traction and was getting some attention online. It wasn't, however, featured on the League of Legends subreddit. So, Will, in my report, I did reach out to a few casters just to get their opinions off the record, but none got back to me or chose not to speak with me at all. What do you make of that? Well, there's a couple ways you could look at it, but I think I tend to the obvious explanation, which is this is a hot-button issue. Publishers are extraordinarily invested in the Chinese gaming market, and ultimately, many of the people uh, you know, who are casters, to a lesser degree players, are, are profoundly dependent upon the publishers for their livelihood. And the cost-benefit analysis of, of giving potentially critical quotes is just not worth it if it's going to get you blackballed. So obviously, I can't get in the head of everybody who did that uh, or sort of chose not to give quotes. But I'm not sort of surprised that this is just a like, hands-off area for a lot of casters. In talking to Rod Slasher Breslau, you know, he challenged kind of a lot of my assumptions because I think when going into the piece, I was like, you know, why couldn't the esports community, this like young millennial generation, be able to push back, you know, as it did with Saudi Arabia? You know, I guess it was illuminating and trying to speak to anybody that, you know, they were just so scared to even talk to me at all. We're seeing kind of like what's happening with TikTok, which was, you know, just sold to Oracle earlier today because of its relationship with ByteDance and if there are any ties with the CCP. And then we have what's going on over with Tencent in India and how, you know, all these apps are banned from China. I mean, is there a breaking point, do you think? Like, is there going to be a point in time in which enough countries are going to essentially push back against China to where it might actually start forcing, you know, differences in internal domestic policy? So I think the answer is yes. And forgive me a little bit of a diversion of this explanation. There's a really interesting shift in the relationship between large technology firms and federal governments. So in the U.S. in the 90s, when sort of the Internet was being commercialized for the first time, a lot of the firms then pushed really hard for like a total like hands off, completely deregulated. Let us let us just innovate without interference. And many people, sort of Clinton-era Democrats and many Republicans from that period were more than happy to do that. And, you know, there was sort of the, the common song of, of you know, we're going to unite the world through information, which, of course, this really reaches its full potential with the creation of social media in sort of the early and mid-2000s. And so this was very much this principle of, like, open access, cross-borders, unite the world, global village, etc. And it was in striking contrast to the way that China thought about its economy, because despite the fact that, you know, the China is, is run by the, the uh, Communist Party, it's not really a communist country. It's much more akin to a kind of version of state capitalism, where there is a market, the market is the primary way the society is organized, but there's much more aggressive state intervention into that market, and additionally, there's a lot of support from the Chinese state to some of the largest technology firms there, for example, protecting them from potentially international uh, like IP lawsuits. And so you saw sort of two fundamentally different ideas about the relationship of tech companies to the state. 
And, you know, China had a much more sort of like tech nationalism approach, whereas many Western countries had this sort of like supranational, um, you know, we're just going to let the corporations do what they do across borders. And so it's interesting because in the last sort of year or two, a lot of tech companies in the U.S. have sort of changed their tune. They're actually aligning maybe a lot more with this sort of strategic sort of thing that the Chinese have been doing for a long time, which is trying to forge closer relationships with their national governments, which also then entails somewhat of a, of a closing of um, these platforms, who they work for, where the money goes. So I think that's where sort of, you know, we're entering this this new phase of tech history where like tech nationalism is really kind of what's going on. And so esports are an interesting vantage point because we see the stuff with India banning PUBG, but also, you know, esports are always sort of a window into pointing out that these things are never quite so easy. These companies are nevertheless entangled across lots of borders. Uh, and so it can never just be like we are open everywhere or we're closed. Um, there's always a negotiation happening. And esports is a good example of that. You know, I wonder to what extent countries like the United States can really push back against China now that the U.S. pulled out of the TPP with, with Trump's election, right? Because then that ceded a lot of potential regional power that the U.S. could have had and, get, you know, gave it over to China. Now it seems that in this fight between China and India, India is kind of on its own. You know, maybe Japan or Korea could do something, but, I, you know, it's very it's very uh, doubtful. But, you know, if, like, the U.S. was you know, in the region and, you know, working with the other Southeast Asian countries in, like, some kind of trade bloc, that then that this kind of pressure could be exerted. Yeah, I think I think it does make sense. And there's still I mean, there's a lot of question marks here of, of what exactly is going to happen. It's sort of a question for a lot of these states is like, do we try to do our own thing? Do we try to like hook up with this international alliance where we're always going to be sort of second fiddle to the United States and to a lesser degree, the EU? It's, it's uncertain what that region is going to look like going forward. But I think the common theme is there's going to be a lot more protectionism from tech companies and a lot more willingness on behalf of states to intervene to prevent uh, foreign sort of tech companies from getting sort of a critical mass in, in certain countries. And then let's go to Riot Games because, you know, in regards to at least what happened with the Blitzchunk situation last year with Activision Blizzard, where I think it was Marco Rubio and AOC maybe that sent a letter directly to Activision Blizzard saying like, hey, what is going on here? Why are you stifling the speech of pro-democracy uh, as an American company? Now, do you think Riot is in itself in a very precarious situation, given that it's owned by a Chinese company and given that the relationship between the U.S. and China is just becoming more and more terse? Totally. Uh, I, do, I don't envy them <laughs> being caught between this. And, and they've certainly, I know, even in some of their public statements or sort of times I've gone to see people at Riot speak, they talk sort of candidly about, you know, the, the biggest game in China, uh, is it uh, Arena of Valor? is, you know, just enormously popular, but it's kind of just a league ripoff, but league is also available there. Uh, and so they're, they're not really sure what to make of that because somehow their parent company is also their biggest competitor. So these weird contradictions that happen in these sort of enormous conglomerates. So in that sense, Riot's definitely caught in a difficult place. And I think their strategy is, I think, fairly conservative. They, they try to play down the controversies and not lean into them and try to, you know, ensure they don't happen or try to head them off before they actually happen to avoid sort of a Blitzchung uh, incident. Yeah, what I can tell you is that esports teams owner, e team owners are like actually like legitimately scared to ever mention anything even mildly negative about China. You know, let's assume there is a world in which North American and European teams, and let's say even South Korean teams, do exert pressure and say, hey, 
riot. We're kind of done with this. What would happen if these teams actually did try to like push back? I mean, what would the response be from the Chinese government? Um, I think they'd probably lose their franchise spots. That's like an incredibly harsh penalty, but you know, you're 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 there in the league at the behest of the publisher. You know, if Riot was in a position of, hey, uh, you know, it's it's this team or like souring a relationship with the CCP, one of those is a lot more powerful than the other ones. Esports is obviously a big thing for Riot, but like it's the majority of the money that company is still making is from League of Legends and not necessarily its esports scene. You know, the incentives, I think, aren't there. Yeah, you know, it will be interesting to see what happens with the 2022 Winter Olympics that are happening in China. I mean, there are already calls for it to be, or there are already boycott calls. And, you know, we'll see if the international community does rally behind those calls for boycott. And, you know, it's not without precedent. It'll be interesting to see kind of what happens. I think this year's Worlds will go off without a hitch. I think that it'll be a huge blockbuster event with tons of viewership. And there will, you know, you won't see a player taking off his jersey with a Uyghur flag underneath or anything crazy like that, you know. And definitely will not be like the Olympics in Nazi Germany where, you know, it was kind of an area for protest as well. Will, with that, thank you so much for jumping on. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. And now I'm joined by Tobias Sek of the Esports Observer. Hey, thank you for having me. David Beckham is minority investor in Guild Esports, a new company that is planning to go public on the London IPO with a valuation of $65 million. So far, this team has a Rocket League squad and one FIFA player. So, Tobias, you wrote a criticism of Guild Esports' IPO on TEO and why it should raise some red flags. But before we get into that, I want to ask, how is Guild Esports getting this valuation? Is it just because of Beckham? I guess that's where it all comes from for now, because if you look into the actual company, there's not much history. Um, as you also already mentioned, they do have two esports teams right now, one FIFA player from Germany and a Rocket League squad that's kind of doing decent as well. but The company was only founded about a year ago in September 2019 under a different name. It was Lords Esports back then. And they basically, all they did back then is raise an investment from an investment firm. They didn't do anything in esports back then. So the whole first year basically for the company was just looking for potential investors, which they then found in a fundraising round they did um, during the summer worth approximately 5 million British pounds, um, which is roughly 6.5 million US dollars. And one of those investors was David Beckham via his investment vehicle, DB Ventures, which is connected to all his companies, basically, and also the companies of his wife, Victoria Beckham. And nothing happened so far for that company at that point. And basically with that second investment where Beckham was involved, the company rebranded to Guild Esports and started in esports with that big goal of theirs to become one of the, as they say, top 10 esports teams within three years. I think overall it's uh, five or six esports players for now. You know, I think a lot of people are pointing to the potential like snake oil salesman kind of situation that's happening here, where we've seen esports teams come in with crazy valuations. You know, there was famously, I think two years ago, Forbes reported that, you know, Echo Fox was valued at $400 million or some absurd number. Um, and it came out to be, we all, we learned that, you know, that those numbers were greatly exaggerated to put it mildly. So these kind of valuations, I guess, aren't new, but I think the reason people are taking notice is because of the name Beckham, right? Like, okay, then does that mean that 
of people who are late to the industry are thinking that, oh, maybe these things are actually worth this much when, you know, that's not really the case because like no esports teams are really profitable that I can tell, correct? Absolutely. I mean, there are definitely one or two esports organizations as of now that are profitable, but they're definitely the exception. In general, looking at the valuations of esports teams, you mentioned Echo Fox, which was one of the ones Forbes valued back then, and we know the valuation was everything but accurate. But even those high valuations that would be around because the valuation the company initially looked for back when they did the last financing round was for the next financing round to be about 130 million US dollars. Now they're looking to raise about $26 million in their IPO at a valuation of 65 million US dollars, which is still super high and something that was only associated with the top esports organizations so far that have years of history, that have a strong brand, a big following, successful esports athlete competing for them. I think that's kind of the big disparity between what we're seeing with Guild Esports now and their valuation other esports organizations. There's just no assets that the outsiders at least could see, but that name that is attached to the company, that is Beckham's name, which obviously helped the company to raise quite a bit of attention for um, their case and bring them in the talks for this kind of valuation. Yeah, you know, I think that's it's interesting, right? Because like the initial funding round that they had was so much higher than what they're going in with the IPO. And I wonder if this is a case of like, buy my pizza for $120 but I'll give it to you at a discount of 50% off. I mean, it's still a $60 pizza, right? It's, it's like still too much. But do you think there's some of that going on? It's a group of people just testing out the market of how much they can get away with, I'd say. Because in that case, it's really just the trust into a group of people and I guess a brand attached to it to in the future build an esports organization with a sustainable business model, which we haven't seen many of yet, but it's basically just that trust into the future. It's a bet into something that doesn't even exist at this point. Just to illustrate, so I mean, when they did their first valuation at 120 million, that would put it on par with Overactive Media and Misfits Gaming, right? And they have a team in the LEC. They have an Overwatch League team, they have a Call of Duty League team, Fortnite players, and a few other like smaller you know, FGC titles, right? And of course, they have the backing of the Miami Heat. So that initial valuation was completely absurd, but even half that, I mean, they, they just have so little. How do you think the IPA is gonna go? IPO is going to go for them? I'm afraid it might actually go well for them, <laughs> um, which in the long run might be pretty bad for the esports industry as a whole. I mean, we've seen one proper IPO with the Astralis Group, which is kind of comparable, for example, to the Overactive Media Group. They do have two of the most successful esports teams. Uh, they have the history. They have sponsorships deals in place. They have a structure in place. They have staff that has proven themselves in place, and they were able to raise at a valuation of 75 million US dollar, which is barely more than Guild Esports is looking for uh, right now without any support staff, without any franchising slots, as you mentioned, but just with that one name attached and 
the question that comes up in my mind is obviously the name Beckham and it's absolutely indisputable was able and is apparently able to raise money. But looking into what he is currently doing, where his business focus most likely is with his MLS project, the Inter Miami FC, which is a multi-billion dollar project that just started this summer as well. And the fact that the backhand brand doesn't mean financial success necessarily. So if we look, uh, for example, at the Victoria Beckham fashion label, which is also part of the whole DB Venture ecosystem, that brand has been generating losses for the last 11 years. And I think in 2019, it generated losses of around 45 million US dollars. So while they're able to raise awareness and financial um, liquidity, they're not necessarily associated with building good business models. So it seems that the IPO is going live next month. And I guess we're just going to have to see how it goes. I'm really, really looking forward to the prospectus. And in the long term, I hope to be proven wrong, um, being kind of skeptical about the company. I'm <laughs> not too hopeful, but I really, really uh, would like for them to find the success because it will be kind of giving the direction for esports in general and raising finances for esports organizations because so far we've mostly seen um, the traditional way of raising venture capital, risk capital from people and entities who are specialized in that, going onto the open market and collecting funds from basically you and I who might not have any idea what esports exactly is, what the business model is, not realizing that, hey, this company doesn't even have esports team franchises and doing the <laughs> kind of traditional esports marketing of, hey, we have more viewership than I think they said Wimbledon and other sports leagues like that, which is kind of the um, way to approach outsiders that don't really know much about esports and try yeah, to get in their head and maybe sell esports a little bit above its value for now at least. But at the end of the day, we have to wait and see how it goes, how the IPO goes and how in the long run the company does for itself. And I guess in representing esports as a whole through that big name that is attached to it, it will always draw all the attention and it will be in mainstream media and everybody will look into it and see if it goes well or if it fails. Right. So I guess we'll have to check back next month. Thank you so much for jumping on, Tobias. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And before we close out the show, here's our fan of the week question. It comes from Logan Osdick. He asks, Hi, I'm Logan Osdick, and I just wanted to ask, where do you feel that esports media should go? Because right now you have a bunch of these media companies coming out. You got Juked, you got VENN, G4 is coming back. You've got a lot of uh, a lot of news outlets coming out, and wh where do you feel that it's going in terms of you know are we going to see an ESPN of esports or are we going to see something like that, whether it be ESPN or G4 or Ven or Juked or you know any of these billion other things coming out Twitch? Like where where do you feel that esports media is going and where should it go? That's a great question, Logan. You know, there have been a lot of companies that are trying to break into the space, whether it be through the news side or through the entertainment side. And we're seeing, like you said, Van and G4 and all the others coming in. And honestly, I think they're all trying to figure it out still. I mean, the way esports audiences have consumed media, it's been largely through Reddit, Twitter, through documentaries and videos posted by the teams themselves. So to have this kind of like third party 
media company come and observe and report or uh, make content around the scene, you know, it's difficult because the consumers, the fans, they're so used to getting their content from, you know, the these already established places. So it'll come with, you know, creating, you know, obviously a good quality production, but building that trust. And building that trust is really difficult. You know, you did mention, like, will we get an ESPN for esports? I mean, there is an ESPN esports vertical, but I think what you're getting at is, like, a dedicated sports channel that's just for esports. And even then, I feel that's really difficult because the way the esports audience has consumed its information online has largely been text-based or through YouTube videos. I don't know which company will first crack the code best. It'll be tough because these fans just really like staying within their bubbles online. But really, a good question to think about. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan. If you like the show, please rate, subscribe, and share. Your support will help our show grow. To see full transcripts or links to our Patreon, head on over to ftwamad.com. If you'd like to follow Will and stay up to date on all the research he's doing in the world of esports, you can find him on Twitter at William underscore Parton. To follow Tobias and the work he does over at the Esports Observer, follow him at TobiasSec on Twitter. If you'd like to follow me and my writing over at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and elsewhere, follow me at Imad on Twitter. Annie Pay is our producer. If you have any questions or would like to submit a Fan of the Week question, reach out to her at Pay underscore Annie on Twitter. Joe Domek is our outreach manager and Ron Lines is our researcher. With that, we'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>